If this life is driving you to drink, you sitting around wondering just what to think. Well, I got some consolation. I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, 'cause I know nothing's gonna be alright. Hello, I'm Ellie May O'Hagan. I'm I'm Owen Jones, I suppose. And this is Agitpod, a fortnightly podcast. Although for the election, it's been weekly. Yeah, but it'll go back to fortnightly. It'll revert because we're lazy. Well, she's lazy. Lazy Ellie, I call her. Yeah, it's insulting. Well, it's also an accurate summation of your general work ethic. So it's a shame. Let yourself down. Right. So we've got a very special, uh, very special guest. There's only one person we could have on, really. Uh, It is Matt Zarb Cousin, former press officer Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. So what a lovely mate. introduction. I feel under loads of pressure now. <laughs> don't you think he's got really, just to the listener, don't you think he's got really dulcet tones? He does, just yeah. really like, lovely. I know it's style, we're just flirting with him. I think you should just uh, run a bath, light some candles, <laughs> just listen to that. Elian Owen's deep bath. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, honestly, he's, um, his voice, just listen to it for, for his voice, his, his Essex twang. That I think is going to make this podcast so special, but also his phenomenal insight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I did talk up our chances when no one else was. Uh, well, very few people were actually. Um, right, mate. You get which uh, which uh, <laughs> would have meant had we lost seats on Thursday or had it not gone to plan, then I would probably have to go into hiding. So I'm pretty relieved at the result. Me too. Um, so let's talk it through. So I fucked up. Um, campaign for Jamie the first time. Voted from twice. Lost. Um, not faith, is in I believe the stuff still, but I thought, oh, everyone's made up their mind, they're not going to change them. And all these people going, oh, you've helped destroy the Labour Party. And instead of telling them to, as you do on Twitter, Matt, oh, you certainly tell them, and yeah. just ended up believing them. So um, I let everyone down. Yeah. Sorry about Matt's that. Matt's tweets have sent several people to the Burns unit, honestly. <laughs> if you want some entertainment, I would just read his Twitter feed. It's... The thing is, we, we, the left, I think, has been bullied for so long. It's been, we, we've had to put up with this condescending sort of prejudice, I think, inbuilt prejudice in the commentariat towards the left. And now 40% of British people, 12.8 million people, have voted mm-hmm. for a left-wing manifesto, left-wing platform. And now they have to just eat their words. Yeah, and we're going to nationalise everything as well. And we nationalise everything. Before we start, we should talk about like when you were in terms of the operation stuff and kind of various kind of what was going on there and stuff. But should we talk about Thursday night? Labour got the biggest increase in vote share since Clement Attlee. There was a small issue of World War Two at the time, wasn't there? Mm. Kind of complicated yeah. things. Uh, so that makes it even more of an achievement in a sense. But and- also, I think the financial crisis it was it did have as big an impact on changing policy as World War Two. It's just that it took such a long time yeah. to catch up with it. it. Took a while, you're right, it was delayed kind of impact. But in, I mean, Labour now, you know, the most successful in terms of vote share, Social Democratic Party in Europe, other than I think Moldova and Albania and somewhere else, and increase in seats. I mean, this is a radical left-wing party. We were told over and over again for many years that those sorts of policies were electoral poison. Mm. And um, I think, What's really interesting is I think Ed Miliband's narrative was actually proved right because he thought because of the financial crisis, the country had moved left or the country, a left wing platform would be much more appealing to British people because, you know, living standards have been squeezed and wages have suppressed, people are in lots of debt. And he wasn't able to run on that manifesto. And he actually said, if I could have done, I would have run on Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto. But Ed Balls and people stopped him, didn't they? Yes. Ed Balls, basically, what we've learned in 2015, everyone's going, Oh, Labour lost because we're too left wing, rah, 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 which is why we lost Scotland, apparently. Um, but um, but in actual fact, it was because Labour wasn't partly not radical enough. And it was actually Ed Balls now who's been, re- you know, he's gone Strictly and all the rest of it. And, oh, look at him. We all love him now. But actually, what we've learned is Labour's defeat had more to do with Ed Balls than Ed Miliband. Absolutely. I agree. I also think that when Ed Miliband was leader, the, the fact that there was this, like, growing public anger wasn't as, as clear. So I have some sympathy for Ed Miliband in the sense that there were fewer signs at that time that people would have responded well to a left-wing manifesto. So I can understand why he didn't why he didn't run on that manifesto for those reasons as well. But I really hope, like now, you know, I really hope he plays a strong role in the the Labour Party now because I think he's 
really good. I really like Edmund Band. Mm. I think he's, he was just instinctively, he was always there. He just he didn't believe it was possible. But but what is interesting is, in terms of 2015 and now, which because it, it's like a different planet. I mean, blimey, the last two and a half years, there's no lactin event uh, in, in various general eventfulness. That's not a word, but who cares? I'm not a writer. I suppose in 2015, when Jeremy Corbyn stood, the arguments in that leadership election that we put forward were that he would be uniquely placed to win over non-voters and expand the electorate, young voters, and also make inroads in Scotland. And that was all scoffed at and ridiculed, rah, rah, rah. And that is what happened, isn't it? I mean, part of the story in this election is expanding the electorate. So rather than, you got this narrative, basically, that Labour can only make gains if it takes votes directly from the Conservatives. We actually did in this election. There was mm. churn and all the rest of it. So you did get a defection of Tories, particularly younger Tory voters last time. That's just what happened. And we know amongst the young population, it was like 66% of 18, 24-year-olds, but also Labour had a 20-point lead amongst people 35 to 44. It's phenomenal. But it was ex- that's what happened, wasn't it? It was people who didn't normally vote, who weren't engaged in politics, came out and voted. And by changing the size of the electorate, Labour won places that they've never won in their entire history, like Canterbury and what's the one? People's Republic. I'd call Kensington. It the, I'd just call it the People's Republic now. Because <laughs> it is. I think the Conservatives recognised as soon as the referendum delivered the leave result that UKIP were going to be finished and that that pool of voters, which is a significant proportion of the electorate, but 10%, 15% of voters, was up for grabs. And that's why May, with her kind of timely interventions, she made a pitch to win them over. Mm-hmm. Um, what actually happened was uh, a lot of those UKIP voters were actually former Labour voters who grew disillusioned with the new Labour project mm-hmm. and wanted to vote for an anti-establishment party. So Jeremy Corbyn positioning himself as an anti-establishment candidate means we were able to pick up all of those voters. And I think that's been missed as well. Yeah, you know what? When I was, I used to work for uh, Centre for Labour and Social Studies, CLASS. It's a little think tank. It's now run by Faiza Shaheen, who's um, Ace. really great. And we did a poll in 2013 where we found that UKIP voters were more likely to be in favour of things like nationalisation of public services than even Labour voters. And I definitely found, like, when we, me and Owen went canvassing in, and you actually, we all went canvassing together, didn't we, in, in uh, Norwich for Clive Lewis. And I remember we went to that... Um, well, I was hungover that day. Were you? I was just hot. Painful. I was just it was hot. also it was hot, very hot, hot and hungover. Very, very successful. Very, it was, it was a Re- successful day. Re- dividends. Yep. And uh, but we went to this um, estate, if you remember, and it was like, Clive told us it was, like, very uh, leave-heavy, like, lots mm. of people there had voted leave. And I remember um, asking lots of people there, like, who would they vote for? And it was like a toss-up between Labour and Tories. And I remember saying, um, not sorry, Labour and Tories, Labour and UKIP. And I remember saying to one guy, like, well, would you ever vote Tory? And he was like, well, no, obviously not. They're for rich people. So I think, um, and, you know, at the time, like, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, that there were lots of signs that this outcome would happen. But, like... But I just to sort of dismiss them all. And that was one of them that I found interesting was actually like a lot of UKIP voters were, were still like, no, I'm not going to vote for Tories because Tories look after rich people and I'm not rich. Yeah, I mean, I found, I mean, again, in hindsight, like, for example, I was in the, because you're right, what happened is because you, you basically impose this kind of cognitive bias whereby you disregard any evidence that seems to contradict a, a narrative. So, so like, I mean, I was in the one seat in the Midlands and uh, on a campaign day. I remember, I knocked on this house, it was this, Elderly couple, they were lovely. They were like, "See you in that current affairs." And they said, um, "And they said, um, you know, voted UKIP last time." This accent is terrible. I don't even know what that accent is. I'm sorry uh, to everybody who lives north of Kent, by the way. Hey, I'm from Manchester. Fuck Plastic. off. Plastic. Plastic. I'm not having this. Anyway, and they were like, uh, they were going about, and they're not going to vote UKIP this time. And they went, "I like that rail renationalisation. I think I might might vote Labour." And then another um, couple, who I'd say in their late thirties, said, uh, "Vote Tory last time and vote Labour this time." I was like, I was almost like, "Really? Why? Tell me. Bloody love you." And they said, I "Really regret it. You know, I'm a probation officer. My wage has been frozen for years. He's self-employed." And what was interesting is the MP is very much on the right of the Labour Party. And one of the great ironies of this campaign is. 
lots of right-wing Labour MPs increased their majority as uh, their constituencies were flooded with left-wing activists to get them re-elected. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, you are welcome. Uh, but in any case, it was true. But they were like, this MP was like, it was like, every time I said about this, he went, no, these are completely unrepresentative, never come to the doorstep, do not put that on the Guardian, it would be completely oh. unre... And I'm not having a go at them because like, I know what the narrative was, but, but it's interesting because the evidence was there. And I did, I don't know how many campaign days I did and every single one of them met UKIP defectees, people who hadn't voted, etc. I, I, I think hopefully after this election we can finally put to bed doorstep anecdote as being kind of some sort of scientific basis for predicting elections because we've heard we heard so much rubbish coming from people because of what they heard on the doorstep and you always get this uh, confirmation bias. You always remember the things that people tell you that you know support your narrative anyway. So it, it surprised it surprised a lot of people, but I think you know the signs were there. You know in these seats, Canterbury for example, you've got five thousand students. Yeah heavily Remain area. Um, the Conservatives really boxed themselves in in terms of going, wanting to go for a hard Brexit and uh, trying to appeal to the UKIP, what they perceive as you know, UKIP voters' interests. And Lib Dems obviously collapsed because they have a very poor campaign, very poor leader. So really, uh, on, on that basis, I think you know, the, the context was, was right for us. But I think, obviously, if we had run on a platform of trying to block Article 50, yeah, right. anti-immigration, which could have happened if Jeremy lost in September, then we wouldn't we wouldn't even have got anywhere near 30%, let alone 40. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. Labour got all that stick on its Article 50 position, but actually, imagine, exactly, because, I mean, Owen Smith, again, he ran a campaign, by the end of that leadership campaign, he was saying that we shouldn't rule out membership of the Euro and the Schengen Agreement. Not quite sure any UKIP voters would have come flooding to <laughs> But also a lot of other people, a lot of other people, it would have been really, uh, really bad. By the way, I've just got an email from Patrick McLaughlin. Uh, it's, oh, not, yeah. it's not just to personally me, it's to everyone on the Conservative uh. Party, because I'm a member of the Conservative Party. No, no, that's, I know some of you think that. No, I'm joking. Um, no, it's because I went to Tory... You heard it here first, folks. It's because I went to uh, Tory conference... And yeah, Patrick McGoughlin, I want to po I personally thank you on behalf of you and the party for all your support over the last few weeks. I'm incredibly grateful for all of the hard work that you and many supporters like you put in the country over the course of the campaign. I know many of you will be disappointed in the result. Oh, it's so tough. <laughs> oh. did, did you see that uh, Theresa May has said that she's going to help out, the Conservative Party is going to help out those that lost their seats? <laughs> I mean, it's the first time I've ever cared about the unemployed. <laughs> Well, they're already finding new employment for them in, like, Gavin Barwell's, like, he wrote yeah. a book on how to win a marginal, and he lost his marginal, and now he's chief of staff, so good luck with that, Theresa May. <laughs> well, Gavin Barwell was touring the studios the day after the election, and he was saying how fantastic Theresa May was, and I was like, really? Like, you've just lost your seat, mate. It's a terrible idea to call the election. And then a couple of hours later, he was named chief of staff, so <laughs> that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, interesting. <laughs> Everything's falling into place. So why did you um, predict it? How did you predict it then, when everybody else was getting it wrong? Why did, why did you feel Yeah, confident? missed it, Matt. Well, what yeah. I think With your dulcet Essex tones. People uh, think that all voters are rational and they've made up their minds. And I think because people perceive the commentariat's made up its mind about Jeremy Corbyn, therefore the public has. But actually, people only really engage with politics when there's an election. They don't follow the day-to-day -day twists and turns of it. And I knew our offer would be good, I knew it would be coherent, I knew it would be fully costed. And I know that he is a brilliant campaigner, and she isn't. And in that context, you think, OK, we can get an edge over them. I wasn't expecting the polls to swing to us as much as they did, but towards the end it looked like it could, it could be a hung parliament. And uh, I think it took a lot of people by surprise. And I think, obviously, people have only really picked up the negative, you know, bits and bobs from the right-wing press, and they've got this kind of negative impression of Jeremy, uh, and then they saw him on broadcast and they were like, actually, he's quite a charismatic guy. Yeah, mm, I think that's true. The first debate I tweeted, my prediction for this debate is that she'll do a lot worse than people expect and he'll do a lot better. But it wasn't because I have any particular insight into Corbyn or May, like in terms of how good they are as debaters. I was just like, because the hype around her is so over the top. Yeah. Like not even Obama could have li live up to that. Mm. Like, conversely, the sort of negativity around Jeremy was so over the top that I was just like, well, unless he, like, rides into the studio on a Soviet tank, like, firing an automatic weapon and talking about how much he loves Hamas, like, he'll be better than people think because, like, that's the impression that they've got of him. So when he, like, turned up on TV and he was, like, the Jeremy that we know who's, like, a nice guy who, like 
can pull off wearing a suit and is very like has a very clear idea about what direction he wants the country to go in was like obviously he was going to do a lot better than people thought because the reality of who Jeremy Corbyn is and how he's presented in the media is just so far apart you wrote about that didn't you for the independent that like Mm. as soon as there was any kind of objectivity that that the public impression of him would improve, and I think that's but, true. I, I, I mean, exactly. I mean, just to kind of back that point up, I think one of my worries about the kind of mainstream media kind of analysis of the what happened is it's focused too much on how shit the Tory campaign was. We know, obviously, it was calamitous, and look... To start off with as much political capital as Theresa May did, where people are like, oh, Labour will be worked out as a political force. And, you know, she had this huge lead and the poll showed twice the support for the Labour Party's... Uh, sorry, for the Conservative Party. That that will happen in a few months. No, twice the support for the Tories as the Labour <coughs> Party. Personal ratings lead, Labour lost by elections, went on to lose local elections very badly. But it was, it was obviously a very unbelievable clusterfuck of a campaign. My best moment was uh, the one show interview where she talked, had that anecdote of being in a lift where she uh, complimented some woman's shoes and the, and the woman said, your shoes inspired me to get into politics. That was a high five. No, but you, you got all of that. I quite like fields yeah. of wheat as well. Fields of wheat. Fields of wheat. Fields of wheat. <laughs> as we run through fields of wheat. That's the, uh, that's the naughtiest thing Theresa May's done. It isn't actually. Yeah, it the isn't naughtiest thing she's done is calling a vanity snap election and getting absolutely hammered in it. Yeah. Anyway, um... Anyway, sorry, sorry about that. Look, I actually think that Yarl's Wood is the naughtiest thing that she's done. Yeah, well, come on to that actually as well, because there's this narrative about we should feel sorry for better before that. Like, it obviously was a terrible campaign, dementia attacks, manifesto, just refusing to debate. She, she came across as like a robot. Yeah, just like maybe. a robot. But there's that. But what is lacking is the fact that the Labour campaign was just so good. Definitely. And there was an inspiring vision. What the game changer? Whoever leaked that manifesto is an absolute genius, by the way. Labour's manifesto. Who was it, Matt? Tell yeah, us. Tell you us. know. I've heard conflicting reports, actually. So. Um, what do you mean? What the conflicting reports? I've heard two different. Uh, so but what are they? Suspects. I, I ought not to say no. But oh come on! I'm if so I sorry. fly you with more booze, will you just say? Those of you who I might read tell you later. Ma- those of you who read Matt's Twitter feed will be surprised at him being so demure at this moment. <laughs> yeah, why isn't he being a lot wider about this? Yeah. Anyway, so uh, no, but it was good. It was a uh, because it gave this massive yeah. debate about issues where the Labour was just on the side of the British people. Most people want the rich to pay more tax, and they want to use that money to spend on things like housing and education and health. Most people believe in public ownership of utilities and services. Most people want a living wage and most people want more workers rights more people than not want student tuition fees abolished so all in all the more and the media go oh this is mad and people like well no i really like it (laughs) so i think that obviously changed it as well as people seeing because people did have a very bad impression of jeremy in their heads which was very unfair it was obviously the right impress and all the rest of it but because as you said because of broadcasting rules people could see the different a different jeremy which is the real jeremy and that's why the pessimism of me of people like me was just so unwarranted because i ended up succumbing to a narrative which was obviously entirely false which is basically if people have made their minds up so decisively then they just won't change them mm. but actually i think it what we came what we realized was it, it was actually the hostility was a lot softer than people thought in that people like rah 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 national anthem or you know what was it david cameron said do it your tie and so but actually as soon as they saw him on tv they were like do you know what my impression that i have in my head which from the Sun, the Daily Mail, the Express, the Times, the Telegraph, and all the rest of it, is just not based in... in it, this is... He is someone who is, you know, full of integrity and... I don't know. And, 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 you, and therefore, I think, when that happens, when people start to think, oh, actually, maybe he's not the person I thought he was or the person that he's been portrayed as, they become immediately suspicious of the press and, the, and, the, and then, obviously, the narrative about the establishment press and the billionaires that own the newspapers, that starts to come into play. And then, obviously, we had social media in this election, which played a considerable part, unprecedented amount of influence that social media had, particularly key influencers and, you know, videos that, for example, Loki's video, which was fantastic and had about 10 million views with two weeks to go. This sort of stuff is just completely unprecedented. So they did run a, run a fantastic campaign. Well, they did really well. Because obviously Jeremy, support for Jeremy is very, um, very much needed a kind of legitimisation after being smeared relentlessly in the press. 
he's had these big rallies and the optics of those made people think, oh, actually, yeah. all these people, are, he's, you know, he's drawing crowds wherever he goes, maybe... And in local TV, didn't they? Because what you'd the get... local TV. Because people go in, hold on a minute, he's <coughs> going to all these uh, safe labour seats. Uh, but what you'd get, and that wasn't always the case anyway, wasn't it? But in any case, you'd get like Northwest Tonight, so which regional TV exactly, which obviously covers areas which are both marginal otherwise, and people see this absolute rock star drawing. The as Michael Crick, the Channel Four news reporter, pointed out, he said the biggest crowds of any politician since Winston Churchill. Yeah. Have you got any thoughts, Matt, about the rationale behind the campaign? As someone who worked on the inside, about why why they decided to go the way they did with big rallies and like social media, you know. Um, a, a sort of less traditional um, political campaign. Have you got any thoughts about why they went down that route? Which obviously it, worked. Yeah, I think it was obviously looking to play to Jeremy's strengths and Jeremy's very good on the stump. He's very good with people and he's very comfortable in that environment. And uh, I think getting him, on, getting him on the stage at We're All Live and the reception that he got was fantastic. And I've never seen a politician get that sort of reception before. It's very unusual. And he has got uh, an, an appeal, particularly to young people, that he seems to be able to to reach them in, in ways previous politicians haven't been able to, even if they've tried to. So I, th I think, um, yeah, I think it was a case of playing to his strengths, which I think they did it incredibly well. Uh, Theresa May's campaign, I think they, they obviously saw her approval ratings were, were very high and, you know, incredibly impressive, actually. But that was only based on these kind of, carefully choreographed public appearances that were often tended to be quite sporadic. So the public hadn't really seen her. What the Tories should have recognised is that she wasn't as good as everyone thought she was. So building their whole campaign around her, which they had to do because the Tory brand is still so toxic in the north of England, which is where they wanted to, to win seats. They were sort of forced to do that. But the more they put her out there, the less people liked her. I was wondering as well, if you could talk us through like what an average day for you when you worked for Jeremy was like in terms of dealing with the press and that kind of thing. Like, what, what Labour campaign was up against? Um, OK, yeah, so uh, I would get probably my first call between half six and seven o'clock, which would be usually someone from the BBC. Uh, and then uh, that would, I would keep getting calls and texts, sometimes between 80 and 100 a day um, until just before news night. Uh, and the level of briefing against us was extraordinary. Um, Where did that come from? Who was doing the briefing? Well, it was lot. I think a lot of the stuff came f internally uh, from either Southside or from Southside uh, is Labour uh, sorry, HQ for those of you who don't. That's know. right. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, or from Labour MPs. Obviously, I was there during the coup. That was a particularly difficult time. Attempted coup. Yeah, we used to get lots, lots of stuff briefed against us. Uh, that could only have come from our side. And obviously, if you've got MPs speaking out against the leadership, however trivial the basis of it is you're going to get your policy announcement or what you want to say is going to be further down the pecking order. So you won't get the page lead in the evening standard. It will be Labour MP criticises Corbyn for X. So, so operating in that context is very difficult. I actually remember a, an example of that, which was um, when the Red Cross said that there was going to be a humanitarian crisis um, in the NHS because of there being such a lack of funding and people, you know, dying in corridors and so on. And I remember talking to, it might have even been you and like several members of the Corbyn team about like whether Jeremy should go on the six o'clock news or not. And um, and then he decided eventually he was going to go on the six o'clock news to talk about this humanitarian crisis. And the first question the news anchor asked him was, are you going to resign? Yeah. And in fair play to him, we dealt with it very well. But then, I, you know, I remember that being one of the first occasions where as an outsider who'd kind of had a conversation with you about it, I was like, Oh God! Now I see what they're up against. Because like, you you, ha you end up now, I think, with social media with this kind of meta discussion of process. So, on that particular day, John Ashworth, the Shadow Health Secretary, did a clip in the morning, and I think he did a clip about ten, eleven a.m. And everyone at twelve, everyone was like, "Where's Jeremy? Where's Jeremy? Why hasn't he done a clip?" Well, if Jeremy does a clip at twelve, he bumps John Ashworth off the one o'clock news. It's pretty standard to have the Shadow Cabinet Minister on the one o'clock and the leader on the six o'clock if the story's still going or to keep the story going. If Jeremy does a clip at 12 and they ask him about leadership, that might become the story. 
So you want to keep that story going for as long as possible, right? Because it's a useful story to us. But people became obsessed with you know, this kind of where's Jeremy phenomenon. Like, where's Jeremy? Well, you know, something's happened. Where's Jeremy? And that is that's completely unprecedented. I remember when, when May uh, delivered a conference speech and it was a pretty nasty speech about mm-hmm. immig- immigrants and all that sort of thing. And people were like, where's Jeremy? But actually, it's not the convention for the leader of the Labour Party to respond to do the attack on a conservative leader's speech. I mean, you know, Alistair Campbell would never have got Blair to respond to a conservative speech, conservative leader's speech. But yet he was on Twitter saying, where's Jeremy? And, it, and I think what they did was they, they set the bar really high or they set the bar where it shouldn't have been and were constantly measuring him up to these ridiculous or inappropriate standards just to fulfill their narrative so i think the next thing that like i think we should get on to is um the fact that because of all of that all of the stuff that you're talking about that meant that necessarily this campaign like the extraordinary um result that labor achieved totally unexpected except for by Matt, and um, um, Precedented. And Aaron Bastani. And Aaron Bastani, family. Yeah, and also shout out to our friends at Navara. Do do check out Navara Everyone Media. Everyone go to genuinely subscribe, listen to them. They're fantastic. Donate. They're great. They're great. And they're also, they're going to be more and more influential now. as um, Particularly the, the youngins and that. Yeah. Bloody lefty youngins causing all sorts of problems. Yeah, changing the game. Oh, destabilising the Conservatives and destroying Prime Ministers. Pathetic young people, honestly. I love it. I love it. I was like, after the election, I was like, we should just. I was saying, I was saying to my partner, we, we should just like have a policy to give like young people fifty quid. And he was like, why? And I was like, just to say thanks. To, can we talk about the, the power of young people? Me. I think we should talk about the fact that because of all of the difficulty that Jeremy and his team had trying to get their message through in the conventional way. This result could have only come from the grassroots, and this was a genuinely grassroots campaign um, that was. And I, I think that was like really, really exciting. That was one of the things that was so extraordinary about it. It was a real, genuine example of people power. The average donation to the Labour Party was twenty-two pounds. Mm-hmm. There was no rich donors, no big businesses. There was no um, no help from really like anywhere in the media. I mean, to be fair to the Guardian, it did. Um, back Labour and the New Statesman gave an in- incredibly was, qualified it wasn't editorial. Qualified. I'd say it was. It was. I mean, look, I've written for. The, I don't. I mean, like, I've written for the New Statesman repeatedly. But and Stephen bullshit the New Statesman, even though he comes from a different wing of the party. I, for my money, the best political journalist in 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 Britain. Actually, agreed. Um, he's absolutely superb, nuanced, yeah. thoughtful. Challenges. You know, he doesn't let his own suppositions and prejudices get in the way. Well, he has curiosity. That's what I think. Absolutely, and and I think that editorial which the New Statesman did was just so. You know, it was it was basically like just don't bother endorsing Labour. It was going on ranting about oh, do people, does he not realise that people have moved on from state socialism and. You know, it was just, you know, it, it was just, it was really bitter and all the rest of it. And, you know, and, and to and to do that, to be so embittered about the policies and ideas in the aftermath of defeat, you know, while Stephen Bush, he's an astonishingly clever journalist, but the New Statesman, they still don't show that curiosity. I found that really mm. interesting. I mean, it is, it, I said this a lot that I think it's true, which is what I find bizarre. Not bizarre, but that, that you'll get people in the mainstream media who will go... We don't agree with UKIP supporters, but we want to know what makes them tick. Why do people support UKIP? We need to understand them and actually empathise with them, you know, and their grievances. They wouldn't extend that basic analytical courtesy to Corbyn supporters no. who supported a leader who in the end obviously got, uh, you know, Labour got over 40% of the vote uh, on, on a radical left platform. And and I, I find that kind of the most restrained. You know, Janine Ganesh at the Financial Times, who's probably the smuggest journalist in Britain. Awful. He, even though he's just he's just completely wrong, and he said that he said, "Oh, don't bother trying to understand the Corbyn phenomenon." I've tried; they're just thick as pig shit. It's but, astonishing. But the thing is, surely these people are given a platform, and they're on TV because they have some kind of insight, and they can demonstrably understand the political context. Otherwise, you might as well just get Pete from the pub to go on news night. <laughs> yeah. You know, so if these people are wrong and have been wrong consistently, why are we giving them a platform? Who, what, what logical reason is there to, to inflict these people upon the public? Well, because the fact is, they obviously, their interest is defending the status quo because, you know, I think some of them, it was disingenuous because it wasn't that... They, they would focus on this won't work, but actually they didn't want it to work. But mm. it was easy to say it won't, it won't work. Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between, like, the commentators who 
thought it wouldn't work but wanted it to and the ones that didn't want it to work I think and I also think it's for me like actually in, in terms of who makes a good commentator the division is not between people who are left center or right it's between people who are incurious and not and not incurious the fact is there were like lots of commentators who were just not interested and I think that was the problem so like Stephen Bush is an example of someone who is like traditionally from like the Blairite wing of the Labour Party but was but was interested and curious I think like Adam Bienkoff and Ian Dunn are also examples of like people who are like centrist essentially were capable of showing a kind of curiosity towards you know what what was happening and then you had people like on the opposite end of the spectrum including like sophologists and political scientists who were just like nope and it's just insane because they, these people have just changed the direction of British politics and there was just well, no that, interest that's in what we should talk about I mean I do you know young people in this country have suffered for years now because of um, we'll just go through it trebling of tuition fees saddling with debt for spying on education the scrapping of the education and maintenance allowance a tiny amount of money in the grand scheme of things to support aspirational working class young people who wanted to stay on in education uh, the scrapping of youth services across the country a housing crisis that disproportionately obviously affects younger people uh, whether it be uh, zero hour contracts and, and low paid precarious jobs a decline in living standards of 10% over the last few years the discriminatory minimum wage cuts in benefits which have disproportionately affected the young we could go on and on and on and the calculation by politicians was these people will never fight back we don't need because basically they won't vote and I think, you know, I don't want to overstate this because even though two-thirds of 18 to 24-year-olds it's believed voted Labour, we haven't seen full statistics yet. And also, it's, you know, Lord Ashcroft's, uh, the Conservative peer, his polling um, seems to suggest that Labour had a 20-point lead amongst people aged 35 to 44. So, you know, Labour got middle-aged people... Well, I don't know, is that middle-aged? People got... People who were like older than not and have mortgages and kids and midway through their career. But at the same time, young people in this country, without them coming out in the number that they did and voting for Labour in the number that they did, you know, that is why we have a Conservative Party plunge into existential crisis and the Prime Minister absolutely humiliated and will go down as the worst Prime Minister this country has ever had on their own terms. We don't like Margaret Thatcher, I presume most people listen to this podcast, but on her own terms, she was a great success. She changed she changed Britain in her own image. Brilliant on her terms. Mm. Theresa May is just an abject, embarrassing, humiliating failure who's turning this entire country into a laughing stock in the, in the eyes of the whole world. But, I mean, I mean, and, and we're not going to pity her because there's this ma- narrative, some, oh, let's mm. feel sorry for her. She, tr- she launched this election to destroy all opposition. Under her, when she was Home Secretary, refugees who were gay and had fled homophobic regimes videoed themselves having sex to prove that they were really gay. She's an absolute disgrace. And, and I just think, you know, the fact that young people in this country who've been belittled and demonised and ignored and humiliated and reviled and, and have no voice almost in terms of the mainstream media, within politics, uh, within, you know, just civil society, and they, they fucking fought back. They roared. And they have changed this country forever. And whatever happens from now, nothing can take that away. And I think, you know, for those listening, if you're one of those young Britons, it's all relative, but if, if you're one of those young Britons, your power has changed this country. And the next time we have an election, we will get a socialist Labour government and it will be down to you and we will change this country. It's an amazing achievement. I think you, you can look at Theresa May and you can uh, come away feeling one of two things. You can either feel sorry for her or you can or you can you can pity her or you can actually think actually well she deserves what she gets and I don't really want to be in a position where I'm pitying my Prime Minister I think it's a sad state of affairs to be honest but she deserves it because this, this, this alone would justify our, our ridicule and the position that she's in is that she hired Linton Crosby who successively different leaders that he's worked for different campaigns he's worked on has sought to divide the population used what looked like now analog tactics of you know using the overwhelming support of the press which tend to be owned by the establishment and, and support the status quo peddling negative campaigning and fear and it's a divide and rule strategy and what social media did in this election is render that completely redundant so hopefully you'll never come back
Yeah, I mean that's because Lindsay Crosby seen as this the Spin Meister general. You know, he's got a knighthood. He does have a knighthood. He and did, he's a nundum, he which did, means he doesn't pay tax in this country. But he did Boris Johnson's mayoral campaigns. He did um, as well the 2015 Tory election campaign. But he's seen as almost this object that we should quake before the Machiavellian genius who destroys opposition. But look at him. Go on. What he does when he fails is he he leaves a trail of destruction. I mean, look what he did to Zach Goldsmith. Mm. He almost forced Zach Goldsmith to run this really negative campaign against uh, Sadiq Khan. Obviously, but Zach, Zach believed it. Zach believed it. We, ne- we don't let well, him off the hook. He's, well, he, he ran a racist, Islamophobic campaign. Uh, Zach has agency, and Zach could have not run that campaign if he decided to. He could have not hired Linton Crosby. But what Linton decided was that the best thing for Zach to do would be to run this negative campaign. Mm-hmm. Zach went along with it, and uh, it backfired spectacularly. I mean, everyone thought that it was racist. And, and then Linton Crosby distanced himself from it and was like, oh, that it wasn't really me, or I wasn't really in control. And that's a similar thing that he did with Theresa May, was that as soon as it was clear that it was going south, he started blaming her two closest advisors, which was Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill. Yeah. And didn't and didn't take any responsibility. I think that the, the first thing that we should do is revoke his knighthood. I think it's an absolute national disgrace that he has a knighthood. Even if you take like the fact that his job is essentially promoting racism out of the equation, the fact is he's not even very good at it. So I think you know he like I don't understand why he has a knighthood. I think it's an embarrassment, and I think we should revoke it and just not ever allow him to run a political campaign in this country again. Matt, I'll ask. What do you think? Do you think when do you, what? Look, if we think about the Tories now, mm. I mean, if if we didn't have utter contempt for these despicable uh, this despicable party, which tried to destroy the opposition in this country, and is now let's just see what's going on. So basically, they're trying to form an alliance with a extremist party, the most extreme party in the House of Commons, a homophobic party, anti-choice, climate change deniers, linked to Northern Irish terrorism, which is ironic given the campaign the Tories just ran. Um, and so that's what they're trying to do. We've got Theresa May with no authority, humiliated in her own party, humiliated with the general public, humiliated with the EU leaders and anyone on earth. Um, we have, uh, but she has to stay in power because they're terrified of a general election, which would lead to a Tory loss and the election of Labour under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, then she has hardcore Brexiteers to deal with. Mm. And then she has um, the kind of Remainer faction of the Conservatives like Anna Soubry and Nicky Morgan. Um, it's she, a bit like a coalition of chaos. It does. <laughs> if anything, Where I think Britain's a strong and stable government under Jamie Corbyn and Labour, uh, rather than this coalition of chaos. No, but I mean, what, what I'm what I'm wondering is, what what's your sense? What do you think is going to happen? What how should Labour play this? Because now Labour have what one poll showed, I think it was six point lead now. 45% support. The only way is down for the Tories. Wages are going to decline. Uh, have already started declining. The economy, Brexit negotiations. Mm. What, what's, what do you, because I think the Tories will uh, desperately try and avoid an election as much as possible. What, I mean, let's make it, I mean, who knows? But I mean, when do you think an election will happen? How should Labour play this? What do you think? I think they should just carry on um, as if it were a general election campaign. Keep going out to the country, go out to the seats we want to target, hold the rallies keep developing policy and just keep going and keep going as we were. Don't just pick up where we left off. Don't stop now and revert into this kind of daily grind of Westminster politics because that's not where where elections are won and lost. I think, you know, the, the, what the Conservatives have to catch up on, and I don't think they ever will, is uh, they need to become a movement. They need to become mass membership because unless... Shh, don't give them ideas. Uh, unless They're they, going to take notes. Unless they, unless they regulate the internet, which is incidentally what they want to actually do, um... That's now, I think, going to play a massive deciding factor in, in future elections. And, and we have the people uh, to share the content and we have the, the skills and the, uh, we're more, much more adept at developing content and our message is much more tailored to that. Uh, that people, you know, the sort of things people want to share. We've got the, the influences they haven't got. I think they're up shit street, to be honest. I don't see how they're going to come back. I don't see how they could possibly win the next election. I guess for us now, though, and this is just because we want to... You know, encourage good proactive stuff is to keep the momentum up no pun intended um, but it is in the sense of we've mobilised as a party and a movement um, young people in particular and so on and, and we just need to keep that up don't we so you said Labour needs to be in, in permanent general election mode but I suppose all of us do now we all need to be basically behaving as though there's a permanent general election on and that means everyone 
not just the Labour leadership, we all need to be doing things like join the Labour Party, but don't just join it, get active in it, change it, turn it to a bottom-up grassroots movement, not some stilted bureaucratic mess, but, but one that's a dynamic grassroots movement. Keep knocking on doors, keep organising local events, keep doing things, protesting against this government, the DUP and all the rest of it. And there's a protest in London on Saturday at 12 o'clock against the DUP and demanding Theresa May's resignation. There'll be protests across the country. But we, but we need to keep that, we need to keep the momentum, don't you think, Ellie? Like, we just need, now, all of us need to be, I know we're all knackered and I just want to sleep for the next few weeks, um, but we just need now to just be in constant campaign mode. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, obviously this election has gone Labour's way. I mean, we didn't win, but, but like, it's an incredible result for us. Better than was predicted by most people. But I think one thing that it does show is that there's no such thing as a, mar- a safe seat anymore. Mm. Every seat is marginal. You know, you had um, seats that, like, if Kensington can go Labour then Hackney can go Tory. Do you know what I mean? Basically, I think that the most important thing, I think, for all Labour activists and all people interested in Labour and everybody who helped in this campaign is don't take a single thing for granted. One thing I've definitely learned from campaigning is that people who live in in Labour safe seats, they voted Labour because they because they like Jeremy Corbyn, but they don't like being taken for granted by MPs who've been in seats for like 30, 40 years. So I think, for me, the way that Labour needs to continue now is exactly as you've said, Matt, but with this mindset of every seat needs to be defended. It doesn't matter how safe we think it is. Like, we need to act as though every seat is going to be won back by the Tories. Absolutely. And and there were reports emerging during the campaign of, you know, oh, Labour uh, phone canvassing Sunderland or Carlisle, you know, oh, it must be terrible for them. But it, the point is that it's exactly that. We, we've we neglected a lot of areas. We had neglected a lot of areas of the country for so long. Yeah. And now we've got this mass membership. We've got, we've got to, we've still got to now, like, re-emerge in those areas. And we've got to, yeah, catch up, really. Well, the advantage is now they've got a spring in the step. So there'll be, I think, people really fired up. But also, you know, what we learned from this election is that, you know, Labour was still, because of Labour HQ more than anything, so Labour HQ, so people just in terms of working out the structure of the Labour Party, that's not the same as the Labour leadership. We're talking about the kind of bureaucratic centre of the Labour Party, continuity between early regimes and so on, um, for a very defensive campaign based on the existing seats. And actually, places like Kensington, they obviously never in their wildest dreams thought Labour would win, because also the polling, the internal polling was completely off, and if that had been more accurate, then we would have fought a more um, offensive campaign. Not offensive, sorry, offensive sounds like. <laughs> no, but I mean, as in gone on the offensive. Being on the front foot. Because I don't think that many resources were sent to Kensington. I mean, I campaigned twice in Battersea. Did two big uh, events there. It was amazing. Lots of young people came out. Flooded the constituency. Um, and obviously that was, you know, that was written off. The idea Labour could win Battersea. Uh, and, and it was taken. And that, that was because... Uh, you know, so I think in the next election, the advantages, I've already listed some of them. And in London, we won way, way over half the vote. This is now a socialist citadel, this city. But it's it, a Labour dictatorship. And I, for one, uh, hail our new Labour overlords. <laughs> That'll be in the mail. No, but, um, so, no, but I mean, now what we need to do, the next election, when it comes, is about going to lot, keeping Canterbury, the People's Republic of Canterbury in Kensington, but also... It's also about now, we know that it's all up for grabs and we can take Tory citadels, can't we? Absolutely. The game's changed, the rules have changed. And I think people have obviously really underestimated Jeremy Corbyn and how just how much people are struggling mm-hmm. and they don't want the status quo anymore. And that's why they voted for Brexit. So you've got to offer an alternative to it. And the Tories just weren't offering any transformational policies whatsoever. It was incredible. They realised Brexit was a big issue and they tried to fight the general election over those terms. But they didn't seem to recognise that why people voted for Brexit and therefore address those concerns, which were separate from just wanting to leave the European Union. They were, you know, people were voting for Brexit because they wanted structural, fundamental change. I said this in the Navarra election coverage. That's Navarra Media again, that we were talking about earlier. It's NavarraMedia.com. <laughs> Subscribe, follow. <laughs> it's basically like, the. it's very simple. It, it, it's not that complicated. Um, 
since 2008, pretty much every British institution has suffered some kind of endemic scandal, whether that's the police, you know, with the killing of Ian Tomlinson, Westminster with the expenses scandal, the media with the hacking scandal, or banks with the financial crisis. Every institution in this country pretty much has faced some kind of scandal, and very, very few people have had any kind of public punishment. And meanwhile, ordinary people's wages have been falling, things have been getting more expensive, public sector workers haven't had a pay rise, things are getting very difficult for ordinary people, and they see that injustice, and they're angry. And when you really think about that, why would anybody want to keep things the way that they are? Why wouldn't anybody just take the first change that they were given? And I think that is what Brexit was about. And actually, I I wrote this recently in an article for Vice about the um, banking industry, that two thirds of British people thought that the people that, that the EU benefited the most was banks and big businesses. And so is it any wonder that people wanted to leave in that case? Because they saw like every institution in Britain seemed to be out for itself. And whenever they were exposed, Nobody was punished. And meanwhile, normal people were suffering. So this isn't that complicated, guys. Things aren't working. People can see it and they want something different. And Brexit gave them something different. Right, we should wrap up with the kind of Jerry Springer style end of motivational. Come on, guys. Now, we did it. Well, I did. I just retweeted it. Ellie did a shout out for people to go, what did you do in the war, daddy? No, it was in what? What? What what did you do in the general election campaign? You know, I dreaded this uh, general election and it was the most amazing experience of my life in the end because I travel around in these campaign days and I met some of the most amazing, inspiring people I've ever, just in my entire life. They were like, you know, overwhelmingly, not just, I don't want to get, annoy older listeners, but younger, vote, uh, younger people and about a half the people who came out had never knocked on a single door in their entire life. It was absolutely amazing. It was humbling in, to meet people. And you played an absolute blinder. And those few weeks, which I thought would be weeks of despair, were the most incredible things I've ever, ever seen. And you should be so, so proud of yourselves. You've, you've done a shout out for yeah. people, what they did during the election. Yeah. So basically, we were talking about this earlier before we started recording. This is the first general election that um, has yielded a spectacular result without the help of people like Paul Dacre, who's the uh, editor of the Daily Mail, or Rupert Murdoch, without the help of rich donors, without the help of big businesses. The average donation to Labour was £22. So this is a real, like, genuine grassroots sea change that we've seen that was only driven by probably the people who were listening to this podcast. So before we came on tonight, I did a little shout out to asking people to tell us what they'd done to help uh, Labour get its phenomenal results. And uh, I've got a few tweets here. These are some of the, these are not the best ones, but these basically I've tried to pick some that were representative of the kind of tweets that we were getting as a whole. So we're going to read them out now. Okay, so at Stephen Donovan, he said, I convinced a work colleague and her family to switch from Tory to Labour in the 93 marginal of City of Chester. We increased our majority. Nice one. Okay, we've got at Pip Thunder. I reached out to anxious and agoraphobic Labour voters via social media and local mental health forums and escorted through to the polling station. Fantastic. Uh, Tokyo Beatbox. Knock doors with two and five-year-old in tow every weekend of weekdays and final week. Constituency went from 400 to 12,000 Labour majority. Well done, you absolute hero. At Ra Silver, I managed to overcome the difficulties posed by autism and knock doors and deliver leaflets and letters for the brilliant Ed Miliband. Thank you very much. a massive increase in his seat in uh, Doncaster. Despite Labour and Cot, uh, a website, a Blairite affiliate website, suggesting Edinburgh Band would lose a seat in Doncaster. He got about two-thirds of the vote. So thank you very much for proving them wrong. I've got one here from Celan Gill saying, I wore a Tory rosette and mooned at old folk, <laughs> which we do not endorse on this podcast, obviously. <laughs> no, no, God, no. Nash Janet. Did loads of posting on Twitter. Oh, samesies. Uh, discussed with colleagues. Went canvassing for Margaret Greenwood. First time I've done anything like that. Fantastic. Mobilising people who were not active before. That's First, what I like. but not the last. At Rosemary Emery, did something every single day, dating report, telephoning, manning campaign office, legs now too old for doorstep. Put your feet up, honestly, you can relax now. At Tom Snape, Keel Labour students completed 
Fifteen hundreds hours of campaigning this year in Stoke, local and general elections. Well done, Keel Labour students. Blondie two nine one nine nine two. I encourage people my age, eighteen to twenty-four, on social media to go out and vote, with a list of reasons why Labour would benefit the country. Social media obviously played a massive part in the election, didn't it? And uh, I think you can campaign wherever. You don't have to just campaign uh, by canvassing or in a conventional sense. Workplaces, speak to people in the pub. I think that all made a massive, massive yeah. difference. Assail people in the pub. At Lauren Sirat persuaded six family members and friends that voting for Labour in a safe Tory seat wouldn't be a waste. Now Labour are equal to the Lib Dems here. And that's really important because a lot of seats that were very safe Tory seats or safe SNP seats, to be, to be honest, are now marginal seats. And it was only because of people like you. At TFM Trademark, I'm 16. I went canvassing multiple times for Rupa Huck and Virendra Sharma. Big round of applause. Yay. The youth. Getting the youth out. Thank you very much. PR, formative, C-O-N-T-R. Convince three former UKIP family members to switch to Labour. Fantastic. That is perfect. That's exactly what we want. Obviously made a difference. At James Ross Comedy, Elder Snap Election Comedy Night Fundraiser, Quantum Leopard versus the Tories to raise 500 quid for Cat Smith in the first week of campaign. Cat Smith is a fantastic MP for Lancaster and Fleetwood. I was very honoured to go and campaign for her um, myself. She's younger than me and a bit embarrassing um, and just an amazing young socialist and the Labour Party is a secure, safe future and a strong and stable future because of people like her. At Shane McElliot, I'm a full-time carer for my disabled son so all I could do was address targeted leaflets. I don't think you should say all you could do because that made a massive difference and given that you have so many responsibilities in your life, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Uh, from underscore Burnley, I told my son if he didn't vote for Corbyn, I would cut off his uni money and make him work in Weatherspoons. He took three mates with him. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Good, good. And that's what, and that's, <laughs> and that's what I want. Um, seriously, everyone, whatever you've done, whether it be knocking on doors, talking to your mates, your friends, your relatives, accosting people in pubs, the streets... You know, Threatening to cut off people's money. <laughs> doing all that, exactly. Tweets, Facebook... You have played an absolute blinder in this, the last few weeks in this election campaign, you know, we've seen hundreds of thousands of people in some way campaigning. Uh, it's been one of the most amazing things that we've seen in the history of this country. And we don't have our socialist government yet, but we're a hell of a lot closer. The closest we've been now since 1945 to a socialist government that will change, change this country forever. That's pretty good. So well done, everyone. But also, particularly given he's here. Well done for Matt, who's done an incredible and inspiring job. Uh, he's one of the people who, you know, in that team, played an absolute blinder. And I think, you know, when the history books are written, when we've got a socialist Britain, we'll partly have Matt to thank for. So give him a round of applause, everyone. Oh, that's too kind. Smart comrade. <laughs> Cheers, comrade. I think we can say this is the, like, a genuine grassroots achievement that was made possible by ordinary people. I think that for me is what makes it so special and such an incredible moment and gives me so much hope. So to everybody who like took part in that, thank you very much for anybody who listening to this who did anything to help with that. I'm really grateful to you. Yeah, same, absolutely. It's uh, incredibly inspiring. And in, in the constituencies where there was a, a more than 5% increase in the turnout, those constituencies tended to swing to Labour. It's incredibly gratifying and it's very, um, it's very important, obviously, that those votes made a difference. So next time, young people hopefully will turn out and even more so will support Jeremy. So thank you, everyone. Uh, do, do keep campaigning, get involved, and we'll just have a socialist government soon, which will be great. And that is it for this week. Matt has been fantastic, as he always is, and we will be back soon with some other guests. Uh, will they be as good as Matt? Well, will they have achieved as much as well? Got to ask these questions. Yeah. But thank you, everyone. Thank you to just to all of you. Thanks Bas very much. Basically, in the next fortnight, we expect our next guest to have brought Britain closer to socialism than it's been since 1945, and then we'll let you on. Yeah, that's your criteria. Uh, cheers, everyone, and that's for signing out. We'll see you soon. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks. Bye. But I don't worry about a thing, because I know nothing's going to be all right. Thank you.